The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, we ask, what might the world's best healthcare system look like? Rising costs, ageing populations and the impact of technology on systems designed for a different era of relationships between patients and clinicians are just some of the challenges faced by health systems across developed countries. Joining me on that quest are two people at the sharp end of changes to the way that healthcare is delivered. One is Mark Britnell, Chairman of the Global Health Practice at KPMG, the consultancy. And the other is Jeremy Hunt, Britain's Secretary of State for Health, who is, inter alia, contending with an ongoing junior doctor's strike. Mark, your new book, In Search of the Perfect Health System, charts your work as a consultant in about 60 countries over six years. So which system surprised you or impressed you on the voyage? Well, first of all, I think we get tremendous value for money out of our NHS. But three uh, particular examples I'll draw your attention to are, firstly, Israel. It spends just 7.3% of its GDP. Its life expectancy is 83 years of age. The trick of the Israelis is to develop a very strong primary care platform so they provide more care closer to home without referring people to expensive hospitals. Secondly, Singapore, probably one of the most tech-savvy nations in the world, Uh, 40% already of their patients can have full access to their patient records. This means that patients self-care more, are better educated and more informed and empowered. And thirdly, I think perhaps uh, strangely, South Korea. I talk about South Korea uh, developing universal health care in 12 years, an unbelievable feat, the quickest I've ever seen. First of all, they shared the proceeds of economic growth after the Civil War and made sure they had a strong healthcare base. And secondly, their engineering platform is being used to radically innovate and modernise their care processes. So they're just three examples that spring to mind. Jeremy Hunt, you also look at other healthcare systems while you, uh, you do your, your best to, to run uh, NHS in, in England. Are these examples that appeal to you or do you have others that you look to when you're in search of good ideas? Well, I think there are interesting things happening all over the world. And it's very striking how there are huge disparities and differences in the way people are rising to the various challenges. But actually, people are all broadly trying to do the same thing. They're all looking at prevention rather than cure, how to keep people out of hospital, how to embrace technology. So what would you like to import into the NHS from elsewhere? There are two big issues Uh, that we need to think more about are, first of all, the pressures of an ageing population. So in England, we're going to have a million more over 70s by the end of this parliament in 2020. That is a huge additional pressure. And we really have to rethink how health systems work and move away from the 1948 model, which is essentially something goes wrong, you go to the doctor, it's cured, or you go to hospital and hopefully it's cured and you're sent home to a world in which we're managing long-term conditions on an ongoing basis, things like dementia, diabetes, things that aren't going to go away, but if you manage them properly, you can keep people healthy, happy and at home. And I think the other issue is this explosion in technology. I mean, if we have been sitting in this group talking about uh, what was going to happen to the British economy and British society in the early 1990s, I doubt any of us would have talked about what the internet was going to do. 
And I think that we are on the cusp of change as profound as the internet in healthcare. Uh, Mark, that, there's two big themes there. One is who's dealing best with the ageing population and the other is that impact of technology. You cited a, a couple of examples, but if I were to put you on the spot and say, give us the system that you think brings these two different objectives best together, where would you go? Uh, the country I think that's got it most right at the moment is Singapore. And what they do is they've clustered their different actors and players in healthcare, be they residential care homes, nurse care homes, general practitioners or hospitals. And the flow between these entities and organisations is much slicker and smoother. And merging health and social care, this is now an objective of both of the, the main parties uh, in British politics, Jeremy. But a lot of people I speak to who are health reformers say, you know, really very little reform is taking place. You're struggling with the budgets that you have to manage demand and you have a junior doctor strike on your plate at the moment. A lot of money that should be going into investing in change is just going to keeping the ship afloat. What would you say to that? Well, I think the first thing is that, you know, without doubt, we have now the luxury of something we didn't have five years ago, which is the ability to put more money into the system because the economy is growing and we're tackling the deficit and we've taken some very, very difficult decisions to do that. And we are, as a result of that, putting in an extra £3.8 billion into the NHS next year. But I've always said that I don't see us as just putting that money into the NHS because I think the NHS and social care system are inextricably linked. If the social care system isn't looking after the most vulnerable people at home properly, then they're going to end up in our hospitals. So it's a completely false economy to say that you can look at the two as being completely independent when in reality they're very closely linked. But there have been linked. reductions in local authority spending precisely in that area. So how does that add up? Well, I think when you have a challenge, you also have an opportunity. And I think those reductions in local government spending, which unfortunately have had to happen because of uh, the challenge of the deficit that we're dealing with, what they are doing is forcing everyone to go further and faster towards the integration of health and social care. I want to turn to a very sad case that's in the news at the moment of a baby who died, a little boy, William Mead, who died from sepsis. And he, his parents had been in touch with the NHS 111, the, the telephone consultancy service, which sort of failed to, to channel the case correctly. Now, is that a, just, and I know you've uh, apologised on behalf of, of the NHS to the family, uh, Jeremy Hunt, but it, what does this case tell us? Is it a structural problem or was this just a one-off case which tragically got onto the wrong track? First of all, it is a huge tragedy for the family and indeed for all of us when even uh, one child dies in a situation where it's very clear that if things have been done differently that didn't need to happen. It's very sad but I think there are a number of lessons and I I would say actually that these aren't just lessons for the NHS. I think these are the kind of things that could happen. But what are the lessons? Well I think the first one is a very specific thing which is a lack of understanding about sepsis which is an infection that can be totally deadly, that we are beginning to understand much more about. But the truth is that it needs much better understanding by doctors, nurses, by every part of the NHS system. But there were no doctors and nurses on the call. There was no clinician on the call. And I think that is what perturbs people, that someone was given advice 
by a relatively lowly qualified person on the telephone line. But that isn't actually what happened. This child, sadly, was seen by a GP six times in the six to eight weeks before they died. The last contact with the NHS was with an out-of-hours GP. So it's actually clinical training that matters. But there is this thing about the understanding of the importance of safety, the importance of how dangerous infections can be. NHS 111, that idea of telephone advice, I mean, it's very attractive in the sense that you were able to deal with quite a lot of people and, and route a lot of people quickly. What do you think of the service, Mark Britton? How does it compare with other countries? The simple fact is that technology can help, but if you've got chaotic clinical processes, it can confuse and confound. And therefore, I think uh, there is a need to look at the pathways of care for both urgent and emergency referrals. But what do you feel about the service? Because I think the, the slightly sore point about that generally, this is clearly one very tragic case, is that you are generally not having a clinician on the call. How often would that happen in other healthcare systems that you admire? Well, I mentioned uh, Israel before being tech savvy. Uh, one of the biggest health maintenance organisations is called Khalid. I saw firsthand through their medical director where clinicians were manning the phones where something like 57% of all paediatric consultations were taking place on a smartphone. So I think you do need clinicians to be involved. Clearly, that's important. Uh, technology is not the problem. The chaotic care processes often can be. So that would imply that NHS 111, Jeremy, might need more clinicians directly on calls. Well, we do have clinicians who are in all the call centres, and I think one of the lessons definitely of the tragedy of what happened to William Mead is that the people handling calls need to be better trained to hand cases over to clinicians more quickly. But I think there's a broader lesson that we have to learn for the NHS, and that is that people know what to do if they think their life is under threat. They dial 999. They know what they need to do if they want to get a flu jab, which is to book an appointment with their GP. But there's a whole range of things in between, which in healthcare we call the urgent need, where the NHS offer is basically very confusing. And I think you do see in other healthcare systems much more simplicity. Look, this is the one thing you need to do. And I think um, it will be 111 because the public can remember that very easily. But uh, we need to have a better range of services. There needs to be an online alternative. But you, you wouldn't be uh, pledging to put more doctors onto calls or onto... I think we the... may well need more doctors available and nurses available on the 111 service. But I think we need to uh, also look at the different channels we use because, you know, if you're worried about a rash that your child has, actually an online alternative where you can look at different photographs and say, well, actually, my child's rash looks like this one, uh, may be a quicker way of getting to the bottom of whether this is a serious issue or not. Something else that's on... Jeremy Hunt's plate and Secretaries of State for Health really have an empty plate as the ongoing junior doctors strike. One threatened strike was called off recently, but there is the possibility of another one looming and even the withdrawal of emergency care. Jeremy, do you need more sticks or more carrots in dealing with the junior doctors' demands? Well, I don't think it's really about sticks and carrots. It's about having a sensible dialogue about what a modern contract needs to be and a recognition that healthcare is a seven-day business and we had a series of changes to the contracts for junior doctors in 1999, for consultants in 2003, for GPs in 2004, all of which had the unintended consequence of making weekend cover more difficult to provide by the NHS. And we have around 200 avoidable deaths every week in the NHS. That's not something where 
We're particularly different to other healthcare systems, and that's not all to do with the weekends either. But I am absolutely determined that we blaze a trail across the world in developing a truly safe healthcare system with airline levels of safety. And part of that needs to be reflected in the contracts for doctors working for the NHS. I think the sadness about this particular dispute is that actually what I've just said just now is something that I think every single doctor would agree with. And so I, don't, I think it's a completely unnecessary dispute. Mark, you've also worked in the, in the NHS. You've managed a, a large health trust yourself. Has the government blundered into this situation with junior doctors? What do you think the way out of it might be? My sense now is that both sides are very close to reaching an agreement, so I think we should focus on the positives. If we do manage to get agreement now between the government and the British Medical Association, I think this government and the country is right to try and stretch our services to seven days because there is a mortality issue at weekends. I think also we know from the World Health Organisation there are at least seven million vacancies now of doctors and nurses uh, globally. We have to treasure and respect our medical resources. So hopefully over the next two or three weeks, people will come together, agree, and we can all move on. Mark, your your book, although it covers a, a multitude of, of systems, lots of different ways of paying for health, comes out and says, well, a single-payer system like the NHS is still, to your mind, uh, one of the best. But isn't this exactly the problem that it puts all the weight of sorting out quite complex changes onto government in the end. And governments, well, they're marvellous things, but they don't, uh, you know, they're not always the most sophisticated instruments for delivering fast-changing policy. It is a very difficult question. I spent 27 years professionally dedicating my life in healthcare to trying to answer it. And I do, yes, conclude that a single or dominant payer is the best system if you want improved population health, improved patient care and good value for money. And that's simply because the power asymmetries between clinical staff and patients are too great and therefore the government does have to have a role in regulating, setting standards and also prices. It's not perfect. It's the best of a bad bunch in a sense. So I'm uh, a very strong advocate. Then why don't more systems move towards an NHS model? Well, if you look at the ones that are ranked the best in the world, many come from the Nordics. Uh, Italy is cited quite a lot as well. So I think quite a lot of them do have a single-payer system. Co-payment or topping up, I suppose, off the back of a a single-payer was rather in in fashion a few years ago. Indeed, a lot of leading Conservatives were embracing it. Uh, So, in fact, were some Labour reformers. Did it ever appeal to you, Jeremy Hunt? I think the trouble with co-payment is that it undermines the thing that we treasure most about the NHS in the UK, which is the equity. And I think the trouble with co-payment is you chip away at that because you're effectively saying people with more financial resources might be able to buy better quality health care. Last point, what about the role of us, the public, and responsibility for our own health? We know that's one way of keeping costs down, Mark. Who does it particularly well? In my book, In Search of the Perfect Health System, I cite the Nordics or the Scandinavian countries. What they've done well there is work between central and local government, but also public and private sector employees. We've done work that looks at uh, patient empowerment or activation, encouragement, and the consumption of care can reduce by between 8 and 21% if it's done properly. There isn't a single system in the world that will be sustainable unless we get patients more in control and more active in their own health. Jeremy Hunt, what would you like us to do more of or less of to help you out with those NHS budgets? Well, responsibility for health has to be a shared responsibility between the public and the system providing that health care. But we are making a significant step forward in the NHS this April. 
when we will become the first country in the world where every single member of the population in England will have access to their full medical record online. Why is this significant? It's because the evidence has shown in the parts of America where they've given people access to their medical record, which they don't necessarily clamour for, people with complex conditions tend to take much more ownership of their own health care and the delivery of their health care, and they tend to get better results. So that's a psychological nudge. What about incentives, disincentives? So are you a fan of, I know you don't like carrots and, uh, and sticks, but are you a fan of making it perhaps more attractive to people to look after their health? I'd be very open to incentives given to employers. I'd be nervous about financial incentives to members of the public, simply because I think it's not clear to me that there's a fair way of making those incentives work. So, Charging for missed appointments, for instance, wouldn't appeal to you. It was an idea that was floated, I think, a couple of years ago. You know, all these schemes sound fine in theory, but then if someone misses an appointment because they are trying to struggle to bring up three children on their own and uh, one of the children is sick and they aren't able to get to the GP in time, are we really saying that person should be charged £25? And then when most people would say no, are we then going to ask the doctor to decide whether or not they should be charged or not? I think that's the issue. Jeremy Hunt, Mark Britnell, thank you both very much. You've been listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McAlvoy. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.